0: Welcome to Publishing Hub, a podcast about publishing issues. Here we are again at the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies at Oxford Brookes University. Claire Squires will introduce our speaker today, John Mitchinson.
1: I'm delighted today to be able to welcome John Mitchinson to talk to you. Those of you who are on the MA Publishing course, and I'm sure some of the others well. Of you as well will know the QI Bookshop as somewhere that we sent you off to in the first week, in week zero, in fact, your are to um, have a look at and compare it to Waterstones and Borders and Blackwells, and um, you might want to tell John some of the results of what you looked at later on. I don't know whether it depends what to when week
0: not. zero was.
1: <laughs> if you can remember back to then. Anyway, um, John has also experience as well as setting up QI the club the TV show and the bookshop, has a a lengthy publishing experience as well. He used to work at um, Waterstones and also as managing director of the Harville Press and Cassell & Co, and also continues as the chair of the London Centre for International Storytelling and as the Vice President of the Hay Festival. And he tells me that his book, um, based around the QI TV series, The Book of General Ignorance, is doing extremely well. Um, I don't think he's going to be product placement too much today Try so. To, no. <laughs> so I'll do it for him do have a look at his book if you haven't already bought it for yourself or for friends um, <coughs> it's excellent and I'll hand over to John who's going to be talking to you about Touching Paper the post-internet bookshop thank you very much
0: thank you um, yeah uh, thanks for the introduction I have done I think everything I'm in a possibly rare but not unique position of being poacher gamekeeper and now game as a published <coughs> as a published author What I wanted to talk about today, given that I've sort of worked for very big companies and very small companies, was what's happening, um, what's changing, what QI, which is a very, very, very small kind of um, departure in in the world of books, but um, I think I want to talk about that and also a little bit about what might happen with bigger bookshops. I ought to start really by introducing a bit about QI and what we do and why we do it. It is, of course, mad. We are, a, uh, you know, we are on one level, a, a media company, I suppose. We make television pro- the television programme. We also are publishing books. We have a website with a fairly uh, lively um, talk board. We also have uh, a piece of real estate in the middle of Oxford, which is a <laughs> club and a, a bar and a cafe and a vodka bar and um, also a bookshop. And, in fact, it was the bookshop that really kicked us off The thought about what might you do uh, with a very small space, with a very highly pre selected group of titles. Could you make something that was fun for people to shop in and make them think slightly differently about what bookshops were for? But the key, really, I mean, I'll give you a little bit of background on how QI started. It was my partner is a a famous TV producer, John Lloyd, and he left television quite some time earlier and uh, started making advertising. And as many people in advertising, uh, as it happens, to many people in advertising, hit a bit of a brick wall and couldn't um, had long periods of time when he wasn't doing anything, sort of directing ads for dog biscuits or, or whatever. some very fine ads, Barclay <laughs> card ads with Brian Atkinson and many award-winning ads. But he started to read, started to read about everything up, up, history, philosophy, uh, had lots of time and discovered very quickly, as anybody who works in publishing will tell you, that reference publishing in particular is a very curious business. There are lots and lots and lots of very long books with lots of information. Many of them are almost impossibly dull. Um, and simultaneously, I had, um, I had left Waterstones and had then had a period of exciting kind of small independent publishing at Harville, fallen out with my then partner and uh, gone into a very big publishing house reminded myself just how horrible it was working for a very large commercial publisher and then was offered the opportunity to run what was then bought as a sort of knackered kind of uh, formerly public company castle and company uh, or castle PLC at that stage it was, um, the Orion group bought it and I had a, some ideas about how to run it it was illustrated books it was reference books it was military history I used to say that it published the fifth best book on everything Yes. It was a huge list, and uh, but an amazing history. I sort of won't go into. But anyway, I was at that same time thinking, why is it that all the great reference books that everybody really remembers, you know, whether it's Lompier's Dictionary or Johnson's Dictionary or Diderot's Encyclopedia or uh, Brewer's um, Phrase and Fable Dictionary or one that, that was on the Castle list at that stage, Jonathan Green's Great Dictionary of Slang, why they all seem to be written by kind of mad groups of people who... Um, who dedicate large chunks of their lives to doing it. And I just happened to be living in the same village as John, and we had we started to have long conversations about what a reference book that was not dull might be like. And that was sort of how we came. He'd already got the idea of QI as a as a sort of a as a I suppose as a as a fundamental philosophy. Uh, and we decided that we could be, maybe make a TV show out of it. But also the idea really was to produce a 26-part. <laughs> Um, encyclopaedia, the encyclopaedia with the uh, encyclopaedia Britannica with all the dull bits taken out. <laughs> so that was kind of how we started. And I, I suppose, if I was going to characterise what the point of QI is, is it's there's a, there are a few the tau of QI. There are about four fundamental premises. One is that everything's interesting if you look at it in the right way. The second is that curiosity is the key driver of, of, of human differentiation sex, food, shelter, most animals share that with us, but you don't get porcupines staring up at the moon and pondering their role in the overall scheme of things, at least as far as we know. It is that curiosity to know and to to learn things. It's something that's innate, and it's something that we're pretty good at, at, at beating out of ourselves over long periods of time spent cooped up in offices. Actually, it never goes away, and it doesn't take very long. As I discovered sitting drinking at the pints with John, uh, two facts from our first conversation about QI sort of won me over. One was, that, was about the history of basketball, where he, um, he told me that for the first 20 years, it had not occurred to anybody to cut a hole in the bottom of the basket. So each time somebody scored a point, they'd have to get a ladder and scoop the ball out. Uh, and the second was that kangaroos had three vaginas. <laughs> Two of which were were, were kind of functional, and one nobody had any any idea what the use of it was for. Um, and from there, I kind of got hooked and thought, well, yes, we could probably we could probably have a lot of fun. And indeed, the the third cardinal point of QI is that humor is, is is very important to what we do, not just because it's you know we like it, but also because it's sort of interestingness is difficult to define in the same way that humor is difficult to define. You find something interesting, you know, I think you'd be an odd person not to find. Um, the um the fact that wombats have cuboid feces strangely interesting um uh, maybe that's just me but it's um I, I, a great a great example of this was was I was talking to a, a school recently and um, I asked they asked if they could to come up with something it was have kind of a sort of a quite dull challenge where we um, one of the early ones was somebody asked us whether we could find out anything interesting about Chelmsford and actually we found out a load of really it's pretty pretty hard at first. If you think of Chelmsford, nothing comes, but there's plenty to be found. But the little kid stood at the back of the class and said, um, what's interesting about wood lice? And I said, well, go and get a reference book down. And actually what the boy did was get the very fine, dangerous book for boys, which was at the back of the classroom. And he read out what it said, which was just that wood lice are grey and live in compost heaps and are faintly amusing, which seemed to me to be a very, very, very sort of sad way of because I could bore you, believe me, for hours. And all I'll tell you, that all you need to know about wood lice really is that they carry their young in their pouches, that they drink through their bottoms, and that they were for a long time used as sort of cheap, um, cheap indigestion aids, apparently, because they've got quite a lot of calcium in their skin. They also produce more ur- nitrogenous waste than any other animal, which is why they all clump together, because they, they dehydrate very quickly, which is why you find so many of them all. Anyway, I'm not here really to talk to you about natural history, although it, uh, it's, it's, it's hard not to. But the point about all this was, I suppose, um, that we n- naturally found ourselves in a, in a position where we were a wonderful moment. We could not do what we're doing without, without new technology. We could not do it without Google. We could not do it really without a lot of our research takes place online so we post up, we have a, 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 a thing that we, um, we call the Elven Lair which is where we are posting up stuff, research on the shows and we criticise it and, but the key actually uh, to, to all of it began with us wanting to sort of build up a, a really good library of, of, of interesting books and I suppose that's the kind of uh, that's the, the, the point of what I'm really here to talk about today which is that we still use books I mean, we, of course, rely for a vast amount of research on the, on, the, on the web, but we always try and get a secondary book source. And that's not just sentimental. I mean, I still feel, although more and more and more of human knowledge is, is finding itself online, at the same time as more and more knowledge is online, a lot, lot more crap is online as well. And, and the, the real point about, about, about what we are trying to do is to act in what the, Chris Anderson has called in his... Excellent book, *The Long Tail*, which I will recommend to everybody because I think it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant summary of where, where um, information technology and culture, generally and certainly anything that involves selling people bits of intellectual property, is going. It's a brilliant book. Anyway, he calls them post—he calls it post-filters—and in a way, QI is acting as a kind of a post-filter. We're trying to find ways of, of gathering together the, 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 the chunky stuff, the stuff that will interest people, and then. And then package it on. We're not inventing this stuff. Or at least we try not to invent it. So there is an implicit sort of challenge, actually, to authority in what we're doing, which is which is sort of I think absolutely um, in in tune with Wikipedia. For a long time, obviously, Wikipedia was was criticised as being um, uh, you know inaccurate and, and praying to, to madmen. I think over the time, it's a fantastic. You watch how it's improved and developed it is a brilliant model for how how knowledge can be mediated in our culture and I suppose that's part of now what I think the the promise of which as far back as the 60s of you know do we have to listen to the as it were Oxford University Press or um, or any of the other great kind of um, uh, sort of police forces out there in, in in the world of knowledge to give us to give us what we you know, do we have to listen to them? Can we not test? Can we not find? Can we not research ourselves? It was impossible to do that before. I think now there is a, there's a, the resources, the technology is there to enable us to, to, um, to actually do it. The key to QI is not, we are telling you this because we know more than you do. We're in fact, our position is very, very straightforward. We, need, we know less than most people. Uh, we just ask more questions. That's the thing. You keep asking questions until you can understand something. Um, unfortunately too much too much education still I think falls into the trap of um, of us (coughs) appearing to know things and learning the vocabulary and the jargon uh, that makes it look as though we know things without really understanding things because actually you know there is a lot of there is a lot of complicated stuff out there that's difficult to understand but clarity and relentless kind of questioning and asking in a sort of uh, in I hope in a a friendly though Socratic way to try and get people to, to actually really answer the question uh, whether it's you know why is the sky blue or um, you know what is love they're they're big questions not all of which will ever find I think answers so that's what the proposition really is that we love books at QI we love books we think books are different Um, I've always felt books are are absolutely unique um, for a couple of reasons Um, it's sort of I don't know that we still need to have that baked bean argument when I was marketing director of Waterstones it would come up with tedious regularity. There were two things that people would tell you about. One was that books weren't really different from anything else, they were another another fast moving consumer good to which I would always say well if you've got a bookshop I can tell you they're pretty much a slow moving consumer good, that's the problem. And the second thing was that nobody reads anymore and I think pretty comprehensively since the last time I was in this hallowed institution those things have changed. Um, I don't think the, I think the the explosion of internet um, retailing has changed pretty fundamentally. But the basics are the same, the the books are doing fine. The book market has enjoyed since 1996 when the netbook agreement disappeared, compound growth of about 6% a year, which is better than GDP. Um, The internet has tripled its share of the market in the last five years. Supermarkets have doubled but you've still got a very, you've got a very powerful sort of retail um, uh, uh, retail presence with Waterstones and I think now they've got Otakus plus Smiths are still solidly a third of the market and uh, indeed when I went to look to see has the market expanded, the market's expanded in its overall size but I can't see much evidence that its its demographics have changed, it's still it's still that extraordinary statistic that about 7% of the people who buy by over a third of the books. And I, I think that is, that's probably because it's a large, stable market. I think getting people, I, I think it, it, you know, supermarkets may be mucking around with that at the, at the, at the edge. But the, the core is that books are doing well, they will continue to do well. It's a market that's growing. What's fascinating, one thing that has changed, and this completely blew me away when I, uh, when I looked at it, was that in the early 90s, there were 1.5 million titles in print. There are now 5.6 English language titles in print, and a huge amount of that is due to the fact that it is now economic to offer that kind of range through uh, through the internet. And I think that that's, has all kinds of effects, um, and most of them positive. Um, it's extraordinary looking at the statistics of Amazon that their top 100,000 titles an average bookstore a big bookstore is probably going to have 100,000 titles at it at its maximum but amazon they they 98% of those 100,000 titles sell one or more copies each quarter which is an ex- i mean i think that is extraordinary if if a, if a terrestrial retailer could do that um, it would be it would be an astonishment in uh, again i don't have up to date figures because i haven't been on the inside for a long time but it was certainly I think if you were, if you were getting stop turns of that kind of level for all your stock, every single book on your shop, you would, you would have been amazed. It was really against the background of are bricks and mortar retailers doomed if the internet. I mean, one really fun statistic that I always used to like when we did research at Waterstones was if you stopped someone in a bookshop, 50% and asked them why they were in there, 50% of them would say, I'm looking for this, and they'd have a specific title in mind. The other fifty percent would just say, "You know it's my lunch break, I like it in here. Uh, you know the staff are nice, or well, um, you know I'm here to I'm here just to sort of step out of the rain or here looking for romance which was a big thing in the nineties, I'm not so sure anymore, but I'm sure people go to borders on modern Mald- Street looking for romance late at night anymore, but anyway. the the point really was the extraordinary thing was when you looked at the 50% 50 of people who were looking for something to buy the conversion rate in Waterstones in those days, and I'm sure they'd say it was much higher now, was less than 30 percent. So you had immediately, you know, even though you had a lot of, I mean, it was based, we were pretty simple in those days, the more books we had the higher our turnover, it was a very simple, you know, it was kind of like if we had an infinite number of books in a very large space, we'd sell more books, But of course, it's extremely, as you all know, extremely expensive to keep books on shelves. But that meant, I th- even in those, in, in the early 90s, we could see that that was the beginning of information technology really helping uh, retailers to understand what was happening, but it's a pretty terrifying thought if you think that half your customers, or let's say a quarter of your customers are going in and not, and, and not finding anything to buy. I mean, there might be reasons. They might have actually found the book and just not wanted to buy it. It might have been too expensive. They might have disliked the cover. It was, it was hard to, but it was, it was, you could see that if somebody was able to offer a very simple, reliable um, uh, method of supplying those people, they would do very well. And indeed, that is, I think, what Amazon are doing. And now it's an extraordinary thing. About a quarter of their turnover, of Amazon's turnover, comes from what is called the long tail that's that's copies that have no chance of being in the store but I don't think bricks-and-mortar retailers are over uh, not least because there's a lot of them and they're quite big and even if they were over they're not going to be over enough I think that they're not over it's very interesting that very re- recently the uh, legendary kind of uh, cutthroat hedge fund manager William Ackman has taken 11% his hedge funds taken 11% stake in borders in the USA and even though their share price has been a bit dodgy. And the reason he's done it is he said, you know, people don't just want a book, they want an experience. And I, I guess at the core of all of my feeling about, about bookshops is that, you know, if, is, the, is the bookshop dead? I'd say only if tourism and sex are also dead. Because I think there is, you know, you can, you can do a load of things online, but you cannot reproduce the experience of actually being with other physical human beings, in a space, with books there, and I think the point is, on what scale and how do you do it? The challenge really for us, grandly titled the post-internet bookshop at QI, was I had become pretty terminally bored with large bookshops, going into them, trying desperately to sell the genius books that we were publishing at all the various publishing houses I worked at increasingly feeling that the, the tail was wagging the dog, and not really as anymore enjoying the experience of shopping in a lot of the places, because they just seem to be silted up with very large amounts of the wrong stock. Because one of the great t- sort of um, mantras in the early days of Waterstones is it's, it's not just having the right books, it's having fewer of the wrong books. And of course the issue there is who gets to decide in the early days of Waterstones we took a very kind of decentralized approach it had some huge advantages and some disadvantages now it's almost an entirely centralized company it has the same problems only in reverse you know, very good at delivering the front list not so good at delivering in my opinion the back list. so I had a suddenly had a completely different thought what if I've always liked the idea of kiosks what if you had what if you got rid of the, the necessity That even the small bookshops have to cover every subject area to make a sort of fist of having transport books and make a fist of having and you just had a very eclectic small list of brilliant books on a on a limited range of subjects what if so you free yourself first of all from the tyranny of space which is that the big problem in bookshops is they cost a lot because they have to be big and then they cost even more because you've got to staff them so the idea was, if we had a book kiosk, a bit like a wealth stand, uh, where we change stock regularly, and the idea was, every time you came in, there would be something different. And there was a absolutely no chance of you, if you wanted to catch the eye of the assistant, you'd absolutely do that because there was nowhere for them to hide because they're in the right in the middle. Whether you might actually come up with uh, a a something that worked, and and that made people think a little bit differently. Uh, about what was possible in a bookshop and we also had a very small space to put it in but I liked the idea of almost setting yourself a small space and a limited there are only two thousand titles in the shop and we're quite strict about not increasing that so if you, if title at, is added to the stock and then, then it ha- another one has to go and the way we selected it was just to have a series of pitched battles um, where we each had to sort of stand out for books that we loved and actually over the course of the last two years, the stock has changed quite dramatically because various people who've, whose tastes were perhaps more woven into the fabric of the stock have moved on, and therefore other tastes have come in. And um, increasingly, also, there's a, there's a more interactive with the um, with the in, more interactive relationship with our with our customers. So it was, you know, it was it was small. It was full of books that we we thought were good. It was, I suppose, moving from what Chris Anderson calls the great move from hits to niche so what matters now if you're you know buying online is a lot less you 're not just going on there to buy the the small head that the titles that are getting all the promotional spend you're perhaps going to look at, 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 at titles in a subject area that you're interested in i mean the great genius I think of of, of books is that you know no no one can ever own the book it's Every single human activity is underpinned by a book. If you want to learn how to type, if you want to learn how to drive, how to cook, um, you know, there, are, there will be a book, there's always a book that underpins everything. Um, and it's, so there's a, the, the vastness really out there requires, I think, some kind of um, selection process. And trust is the key. Any kind of recommendation always comes from trust. And it seems to me if you can keep that trust chain as small and as tight as possible so that people know that there are the human beings who are making these decisions then you have a chance of maybe selling them and I guess the bottom line really is how is it working? Well it's working, working, I have to say, remarkably well. It's beating all its targets. The targets are not, you know, we're not in a position to take over um, Blackwells yet um, I think it would be fair to say we wouldn't want to, but we have, you know, we can take, again, there's no point in us trying to do, the nice thing about this, I know there was this, this, this uh, what's called the ragu effect in America where the leading spaghetti sauce is called ragu, and cleverly, what people didn't do was to try and make something that was just like ragu but was different, they made lots of different styles of spaghetti sauce, and what happened in the end was the whole market for spaghetti sauce. People suddenly realised that they didn't want to make it themselves and wanted to buy different kinds and it it expanded. There's no point in us trying to beat up uh, our opposition. We'd never discount. Just no point in doing it. So what we try and do is 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 to make our stock more interesting, to find things that other people and then to push those. Or if there are books like The Dangerous Book for Boys, which we do like a lot, we have sold now, I think, 50 copies of that in our little, in our at full price, which is completely nuts because you can buy it for. Uh, I think today it's at 60% off on Amazon, or you can go around the corner and get it 50% off in Waterstones. But it just shows you that there is a kind of uh, what you hope is developing is a sort of a, a loyalty, and I'm there, and I may as well buy it anyway. So it's not just that we avoid everything that's popular. In fact, what we're trying to do is to find things that are potentially popular. That other people haven't put on their tills because we have, we to be honest, and I enforce this very strongly. We have, um, you know, there's no point in us having reps to come and visit. We we you know we talk to publishers quite regularly, and we've now got fantastically good relationships with lots of very small publishers, um, both here and in America. We do a lot, we do a lot of importing uh, legally, um, (laughs) mostly. Uh, books from America, because, again, it's an area that isn't being represented elsewhere. Um, But I would say at the moment, um, on our bestseller list, I mean, one fantastic result this year was because of the complete madness of one of our booksellers, Tomasz Kluszynski, who was a great Zbigniew Herbert fan. We sold over 320 copies of Barbarian in the Garden, which is a wonderful uh, travel book. Uh, um, mostly, uh, mostly about uh, about Tuscany in Italy, which I completely, completely commend. But it's just pure madness. He just tried to sell it to everybody, even if he'd already sold it to them. And it kind of, it was sort of we called it we called it sort of Polish hand selling, um, which which worked. But at the moment, apart from the dangerous b- b- book for boys, we've got a great little book called uh, Overheard in New York, which is an American import. But it's just collection of conversations that people have overheard on subways and, in, and it's a, uh, alongside that, not quite as good now he's been resigned but we've sold about 30 <laughs> copies of a little hard book called Pieces of Intelligence by, you see you're going to get actually the real point of this is you're going to get Christmas shopping recommendations, that's why I really <laughs> hoped you would all pay attention Pieces of Intelligence, It's they've taken chunks of Donald Rumsfeld's speeches oh. and turned them into and, and versified them so they look like Beautifully produced, kind of parodies of short existential poems. And it works brilliantly, I have to say, that's great fun. Um, I think we're not the only shop to be onto Scouts in Bondage, but it is a marvelous book of sort of late 19th century, early 20th century, unintentionally hilarious, sometimes obscene covers um, of, of books, um, Girls Who Were Famous Queens, that kind of thing. Um, there's a great book by Pauline Keenan I think it's a great book. It's slightly controversial among Shakespearean scholars. Called "Filthy Shakespeare," which is where she's taken <laughs> she's taken chunks of Shakespeare and reproduced the um, uh, the text, putting all the innuendo explicitly into the text. So it, it is filthy, but it, it is also quite funny. But it has it has upset people, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mushrooming without fear. It's a tiny little pu- publisher in Ludlow. is pu- published this brilliant book—the only book you'll ever need if you want to go out and, and, and collect wild mushrooms—and uh, it's it's just a, it's a really great. It just shows you what good, sensibly targeted small publishing can still do. And then we've got also we you know like every other shop we have events. We've got signed copies. They all they all fly off the shelves. On the children's book side, we do we 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 pioneered really importing. We have I don't know how many of you've been into the shop, but we have a section in the shop called Prize Winners. Which allows us to put fiction and non-fiction together, which is something we've always always liked to do. I mean, the idea of the categories is, is we change them quite regularly because they, they after a while they begin to irritate even us, and it is of course a perverse way of categorising books. But I still some of the ones that stay are interesting. Um, we've we've got, we've got um, you know book club classics sort of works because it's just a really it tends to be a really good popular contemporary fiction section. Uh, avoiding the midlife crisis seems oddly popular at the moment, where you have a combination of, as it were, Richard Ford sort of novels of, 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 of uh, 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 life in New Jersey, alongside kind of um, self-help books. Uh, the Good Life does very well, which is Hugh you know, Fernley Whittingstall at one end, and Cold Comfort Farm at the other. Um, but the idea of the juxtapositions is to try and is is to provoke kind of comment and conversation. It's hopeless, of course, if you're trying to find anything but that 's part of the perverse charm I mean, we wouldn 't want to um, it is like a welt stand i mean you you know you don 't get to um, spend your own time browsing a welt stall because you know, it wouldn 't work i don 't think um, and it 's not really meant but as I say on the kids' books we've put, we 're bringing the the Caldercut and uh, Carnegie winners in and finding all, uh, also we 've got a fantastic publisher that that takes uh, that translates pu- uh, wonderful European picture books into English and the great thing is you bring these things in with a bit of with a bit of conversation you can sell them you can sell ultimately obviously anything but I think what we're trying to find is stuff that's that's maybe that's complementary to, to to what else is going on out there and I've always said it's it's like mm-hmm. a it's like an espresso you know you go in there you don't have to spend that much time you can clock out what quickly what's new or you can ask unless you know you, you're or you can just sit there and or you can literally have an espresso and sit there and have a cup of coffee or then go through into the cafe because the other key to what we were trying to do was to say well and this i'll, I'll come on to this in, in, a, in a moment i'm, I'm going to wrap up with my with my um my list of what i think how i mean this all sounds cute and nice and those of you who've been to the store will indeed see that it is quite cute and quite nice and the staff are friendly and you can get reasonable coffee next door but I mean, does it amount to a hill of beans in terms of an industry that is, you know, 2.7 billion? Well, the answer is obviously not overnight. But I do think that the point about coming and talking to you today was that I do think that there are a few little things in what we're trying to do. And certainly, you know, sitting on a, now on a TV show that was watched by 4 million people at the weekend and a, and a book that seems to be doing well, you know, we're not, we're not getting everything wrong what I think is is wrong with most bookshops as they stand at the moment is that they are dull and the reason they are dull is the reason that the internet is not dull because the internet is much more driven by us than it is by publishers and retailers figuring out what how they can shift market share around so they can both try and maximize their their money but basically bookstores are if if, if I was going to my sort of prescription for bookstores would be, there are a fantastic potential opportunity there to apply some of, the, some of the, the things that we've tried to do. They should be academies of interestingness. They should be centres for real, for promoting, actually, people's self-development, education, and, and entertainment. They, they're, they're quite big. I don't believe that they need to be as full of books as they are, because I don't believe that, actually, in the long run, that they are going to, that that I think that the internet will, will taper off. I don't think the internet will become 60% of how we buy books, but I think there is an opportunity, certainly at the, at the sort of top end of the market, for bookshops to do something a bit more interesting. Like, you know, there's a blog every apparently there's a blog, a new blog starts every second somewhere in the world. You know, there is an extraordinary opportunity I think for bookshops to go back to being local, and. Um, using the technology, using the, the, the tools that we now have, they should for sure have a load more. I mean, why do you, why do you need internet cafes when you could have that space given over in bookshops? Now, my ideal bookshops, they would have 50% of it would be space for books, the other 50% would be given over to cafes, to having screens, to running cinemas. I mean, there's a whole, I think, Possibility now for having using bookshops to to show really interesting films that get distribution nowhere else. Yes, of course we can all go and see them, Uh, we can all buy the DVDs, but we don't. Um, You know, it's it's. So, I think in terms of reconfiguring the space, you could make bookshops a much more attractive, a much more. The 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 best bookshops always have this strange kind of position in a community, where they're um, they're neither quite, kind of, you know, the force of mammon nor are they quite the public library it's that sort of third place thing they are places where you can go places where you can meet people places where you can talk to other human beings they should be surgeries as well they should be you know there should be places where knowledge about books can be pulled i don't see why now if you have let's take let's take if you took a a business section or a or a poetry section in a bookshop you could open that up you should put the the, the online and the as it were the offline could begin to gel why not review in, on a store by store basis if you've got a big store what your readers the people who are, who are signing up using the idea of, of basically of social networking which is huge as we all know sign people up to your club sign them up for events get them involved in the st- selection of stock get them involved and um, actually start to interact with your customers rather than simply expect Look, I love the stuff in, in Waterstones as much as the next person, but it is a tough call if you're straight out of college, or not even out of college, and you're 20, to put together a brilliant business section, or a brilliant... But instead of having all these decisions being made remotely at, at the centre, you could be using... Technology and bookshops could transform their function and their role, I think, in, in, in the local communities, and still, I'm sure, turn a, a, a tidy profit, because the internet isn't going to get, go away. But I do think that people coming together and talking and picking up and as the title of the speech was touching paper it 's tremendously important I think to interact with books that isn 't going to change you know people have written books off they write books off every single new technology that is ever invented will kill the book off it was it started oddly enough with the music hall in the late nineteenth century then it was um, of course going to be radio then it was going to be television then it was going to be video for a while if you remember rather amusingly it was going to be books on CD um, Each time actually what books do basically is they become complementary they, be, they, they find a way of working in a complementary relationship with other media. So uh, while there are books published and I think we all I hope we all believe that books will still and continue to be published for sure lots of lots of reference stuff deserves to be online you know we don't need to have the OED. In, in, our, in, our, in our living rooms anymore, we, if we can get it online. Although it's, you know, it's nice to have it there, you know, as a sort of iconic thing in the corner of the room. But we don't need it, but we will, while human beings are thinking and writing, books will be produced. They're, you know, they're just too good, they're too brilliant a bit of technology. They're too cheap, they're too portable. Um, I'm sure it will change, but bookshops, bookshops could raise their game tremendously. Instead of being places where a third of their stock doesn't move and their staff are underpaid and disgruntled and their promotional program is you know, more or less driven by the 19th century idea of here is something that has just been published and how would you like it for half the price it really should be sold at? Um, yeah, I was always told that marketing was about getting people to pay more for products rather than getting them to pay less but all the effort now in publishing is going into pushing front list titles and that will have to change because in the end in the long run what the long tail tells you is there is incredible demand out there for for, for books i mean the, the the fact that there are three times as many in print now than there were 10 years ago is an astonishing an astonishing truth and bookshops could do a lot more to reflect that i had a fantastic quote which i couldn't quite fit into the demonstration about books from the great puritan bolstrode whitlock but for company the best friends in dance counsellors, in dance comforters, time's perspective, the home traveller's ship or horse, the busy man's best recreation, the opiate of idle weariness, the mind's best ordinary, nature's garden, and the seed plot of immortality. So, <laughs> books, very good things, and they'll be, around, they'll be around much longer than we are, I'm sure.
1: Okay, perhaps on that very positive <laughs> note. <laughs>
0: Further information about the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies can be found on our website, ah ah.brooks.ac.uk, slash publishing. The music for today's podcast was provided by Ghana, spelt G-A-H-N-A-H. Further information can be found on the website, www.podsafeaudio.com. This is Chris Jennings signing off for Publishing Hub.